Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantal. I'm Tiso. And this week we're doing a series of special podcasts in collaboration with the Sociological Review at their conference in Gateshead. Today we've got a special guest, Iona Data. Welcome. Thank you. And Iona is a geographer at King's College London. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your research? Thanks. Yeah, I would probably not call myself a geographer, although I teach in the geography department. I would call myself an urban studies scholar just because I work across different disciplines. I also have a background in architecture, environmental design and planning. But I think what makes my work relevant for geography or indeed maybe sociology is uh, because I am very interested in the politics of urbanization, urban transformations, and particularly from the perspective of how people, ordinary citizens, um, subaltern, marginalized citizens, experience these sets of urban transformations and the politics of urbanization in the city, how they relate to it in the present, in the past and in the future. Could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by urban transformation within cities? Yeah, um, I think how I understand urban transformations is perhaps to do again with my background. I see it both as uh, from above and from below. I would say uh, urban transformations to me refer to a set of material aesthetic changes in the physical built environment, whether it is to do with uh, buildings or streets, infrastructure, urban services, any sets of material aesthetic changes, and then its relationship to what comes from below, the how ordinary people, ordinary citizens understand these changes, how they negotiate them, how they live with them every day, and then perhaps also uh, acknowledge or even challenge these changes. So for me, urban transformations is physical, it's social, it's environmental, and it, it kind of seeps into everyday life in all sorts of different ways. Okay, I live in London, so in the city of London, so there's been a big transformation. And I'm kind of interested in your work, like looking at the idea of, like, of a smart city right. and how that's kind of leveraged by not just the people that live there, but the kind of dispossessed. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the things they've installed in London now is like interactive stands. Right. But the only people I see use them are the homeless people. Hmm. Which What's is, an interactive stand? So it's a, it's like a charging point. You can charge your phone. But Those benches? Yeah. No, no, it's like a stand. No, it's, no. Like a, it's like a pole and it's got like you, plugs. It's also got and... a phone in it as well. So they use it as phones. Oh. And it's also got like digital technology and you can look at it. But the people that use it exclusively are homeless. Mm -hmm. No one else uses it. And it's like a place where they all kind of congregate and they can communicate with each other and charge their phones. And it's weird because like I said, in London, in the middle of the city, where it's bankers, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, the only people that use it are the dispossessed. Mm -hmm. And so it's how is technology being engaged and mm -hmm. leveraged by, because it's from above, mm -hmm. but the people from below are the people that are using it, which is quite interesting to see. So um, yeah, it, like I said, exclusively, my friends call them crackheads. Essentially they are crackheads, they're using it, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, all crackheads. <laughs> so yeah. We Should were... I answer? Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, when we talk about smart cities, we talk about a particular kind of corporate-driven vision, which is obviously about implanting existing or even creating new cities through very kind of high-end technology, almost ubiquitous technology, which connects everything. And you must have heard of big data and mm -hmm. internet of things. 
if we kind of break it down and we think about cities driven by technologies, that actually is quite an old concept. Mm. And smart cities, perhaps in, in my work, how I look at it is, is kind of a moment in the very long genealogy of urban transformations, mm. particularly urban transformations driven by improvements or uh, revolutions in internet and communication technologies, whether it was early, it was telecommunications, or now it's net, then networked urbanism, now it's ICT and IoT, etc. So to me, uh, when I look at smart cities, I look at it from that perspective, that it's not an its own entity per se, that it's nothing new. It has a connection to the past. And indeed, it's a kind of window to where we might want to go or where we are expected to go mm -hmm. in the future. What you were talking about in East London, that's really exciting because that really shows the, the potential of urban transformations in a way that once it's out of your hands and it's there in the city, in material, physical spaces, people have agency, people will do things to it that have been probably beyond the imagination of the intention mm -hmm. yeah. of these products. So uh, those kinds of spaces to me are really exciting spaces to look at and examine and understand. The other aspect of it is the whole digital divide issue and, and smart cities are being pushed out, particularly to say, well, you know, we want everyone to cross that digital divide because digital space is where all these discussions between state and citizen is now occurring. So we have that and because of which these kiosks are pushed out, but then also there is a huge class element to it in the sense of who is this intended for and who actually uses it. And mm. perhaps why you see don't see bankers using it is because they have other ways of charging their mobile, whereas their homeless people might not. So, I mean, I, I'm really interested in these kinds of third spaces, so to speak, where things happen unintentionally or things happen in which you look at it and it's not expected to happen. And smart cities can create those spaces. However, in, in other places where they have been pushed down from top down, there, there is possibility that the considerations of what are act the actual needs of the homeless or marginalized or social housing tenants, or you know, if you talk about India, people living in slums have not been thought out. Particularly if you're thinking about you know, transforming cities through technology, if you're thinking about using smart meters, for example, you can only install smart meters when you have an infrastructure of delivering electricity. You can install smart meters when you have an infrastructure of delivering clean drinking water. If that's not even available, for example, in slums, you are automatically, by definition, leaving mm. citizens out. Mm. So I think maybe the, the short answer is that there, it takes a variety of different forms and it's unintended forms is where I'm really interested in. Can there be an inclusive, urbanly transformed smart city? It depends on how you describe the smart city. So in, in one of my uh, discussions with stakeholders, uh, I put across exactly that same question. And we had a room, room full of uh, politicians, policymakers, local councillors. Where was this, sorry? This was in India. And people from Slum Dwellers Association and Homeless Associations, etc., Hawkers Associations. And I put this uh, question across. And the councillors and the policymakers said, yes, we can do it. We can give you better quality and we can you know, reduce your bills by putting smart meters. We can give you public Wi-Fi. And that would be a socially inclusive smart city because everyone has equal access. The Hawkers Federation, the representative said, we were already smart. And we were smart because we have very little money 
And we use this money to not just for our livelihoods, but also educate our children for the benefit of the next generation. So that to us is smart. We don't need technology to make us smart. Right, I see. This is what I was, I was having a debate with an architect the other day, randomly, because I was concerned about the kind of regeneration of East London. So I said, your vision, and you have a vision of a smart city, this inclusive city. And then I said, anecdotally, I look at the kind of banners you have around, it's all very white. And East London is predominantly yeah. Bangladeshi, but they're called all... things like a boutique yeah. set of flats. Yes. But people like the people that, are, that live there, I'm not represented in that vision that you have. Yeah. Hmm. And then when you're building stuff, like she was saying, like so obviously the developer comes in, he's got a quote, a spec, and the specs out for the really good, nice stuff. Right. But the social housing is the bit they use chicken mesh, yes, and stuff like that. So I'm thinking, like you're reinforcing the inequality, mm-hmm. and yes. they want to knock down flats. And they're saying you've got access, but mm-hmm. I haven't got full access. I live there, but I've got half access. Mm-hmm. You've got to go around the back. I've got to go around the back. You're reinforcing things that I thought, especially in London, yeah. in this particular part of London, that were prevalent in Charles Dickens' times. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think. I'm, uh, Chantal and I went to see a video at Goldsmiths, mm. a film uh, made in the 70s about the housing crisis in London in the 1670s. And Les was like, you know, at the moment people are being priced out of the city, at the time people were being planned out of the city. But actually it's a combination of both now, because what you're talking about is people are knocking down social housing and planning people into social housing in other cities, because they're like, you're not rich enough to live in London, basically. Yeah, it's mad, but like I said, these guys have a vision yeah. of a smart city and yeah. it all seems really nice and high tech. It almost yeah. seems like Star Trek and I'm like a bit of a geek. So I'm like, yes, this is yeah. amazing. We can talk on screens and stuff like that. Yeah. But that's if you've got <laughs> if you've got access, if you've got yes. the money, if you yes, have the yes. right social class, yes. you're okay. There is something to be said of smart cities as in digitally driven management and governance of a city per se, in as much as it can make leakages less it can give governance a more efficient process. In what way? For example, you know, if you put smart meters, you can detect leakages. Right, okay. London, for example, for a very long time has had the Oyster Card even before it began branding itself as a smart city. And the Oyster Card made certain aspects of your life, of ordinary citizens' life, Mm -hmm. easier. But I think the problem is to see smart cities as the only solution is where I think where we need to really push back because mm-hmm. there are certain elements of your life which can be improved through technology. And we all use laptops, we all use uh, computers, we all use social media, internet, etc. That makes communications easier. Yes, obviously there is an element to that. But I think when we think that it can resolve social problems which are really deep-rooted and whose The problem is not as a result of lack of communications. The problem is deep-seated historical inequalities. Mm -hmm. Then we have a problem. So, for example, another project that I'm looking at in India, it is about, it's called the Smart Safe City. And often, because I'm sure you've heard of the, the increased mediatized issues about rape cases in India, so one of the ways that they have tried to address it is, is make the smart, safe city, increased um, security cameras, digital surveillance. And when we try and use technology to solve a problem of misogyny, then it's a failure of the smart city vision. It's a failure of top-down thinking and not really understanding what the deep-seated problem are. 
Mm-hmm. And reinforcing and that reinforcing, misogyny. Surely. Exactly. And and so then it becomes that women are the one who are actually monitored for their movement. And we have smart safety apps and women have to download these apps. So instead of actually saying that we need to address misogyny, we are actually monitoring women for their movements in order to protect them. So it becomes paternalistic. And I think, you know, the same discourse can apply for social housing tenants and reinforcing those inequalities. This is how it's become. And so, again, anecdotally, you speak to people and they feel like the government is watching them. So they feel paranoid because this is not about monitoring people for their safety. It's about monitoring working class people. And in it's like, it's most kind of like, so in London, you've got lots of um, facial recognition cameras. So you have the same thing in China and they do exactly the same. And so you have the government now looking at people who they consider socially undesirable. Mm -hmm. And that's had an effect on people, how they feel. Yes. And you you have a sense of that you don't belong anymore. So this is the conversations people have been having they've grown up in this area and they're not politically engaged at all but mm-hmm. they even now they feel they don't belong right so what do you do with society when people feel they don't belong that's a big question <laughs> <laughs> how much time have big we got? question can we can i can she ask the question okay, okay so we've got one minute to ask you do you want to ask it the question you pick what what does post-colonialism mean to you particularly thinking about where we are thinking about this conference thinking about undisciplining mm-hmm. what does a post-colonial theorist do or mm-hmm. res- and researcher do? Mm-hmm. What is your role? Wow, that's a big question again. Um, <laughs> well, it means different things uh, to me as, as well as to others. But I think to me, it means different things in different spaces and different times. I see myself as a post-colonial scholar. And that is a kind of a very instrumentalist uh, identity that I have acquired in that I come from a space that has been colonized in the past. And that obviously imprints particular kinds of identities to me from inside as well as outside. And that obviously directs how I understand post-colonial. It is to me when I look at spaces and urban transformations, I think about post-coloniality as a history of social inequalities that are reinforced both geopolitically, but also socially through gender, through class, through religion, caste, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, the post-colonial is a grid of social power relations in time, in space, and also in scale from the geopolitical to the very personal. Mm. Um, And it is post-colonial because it has connections to a past history where particular populations decided to travel across Mm. the world and colonize other parts of the world. And that has led to a set of transformations that we are still dealing with. So post-colonial to me is not just to look at the present, but also to look at a genealogy of historical inequalities, historical built material aesthetic transformations, but also now increasingly I'm becoming more interested in how that will also shape our visions of the future in where we see ourselves going forward and whether those inequalities can ever be addressed through that lens. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Iona. We're looking forward to hearing your keynote speech now. You've been listening to Surviving Society at the Sociological Review Conference. Um, You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to us, please.